Welcome to Off Hours, a conversation between John Edwards and Chris Manning. Looks like you're making some solid progress on your case there. Things are moving along pretty well. I should have should have enough of the case done by the end of this week that I'll be happy. I leave for the UK in a week and a half, so I I need at least a basic case and buckle made by then. Hmm. I definitely won't have a dial. I probably won't be able to even put the movement into the into the case by the time I leave, but I will at least have the case assembled probably a basic polish put on it you know so the lugs are there and everything's it'll resemble a watch at that point it just won't have the the movement or the dial or anything in it mm-hmm. i'm happy that it's uh it's finally moving along and getting somewhere yeah, with the strap on it it'll give a or a strap on it not necessarily the final one yeah it'll give a, a pretty good idea of the presence it'll have on the wrist i've just got a simple black leather strap that i'm i picked up that that i'll use just to just to make sure that it's working. I'm also stopping in when I'm in uh, when I land in London on Thursday. I'm stopping in to visit uh, Mia Sable. Mm. Uh, she does handmade leather straps. And, uh, she's going to do a custom strap for me that'll eventually be my own strap. You know, whatever I what I eventually use on my own watches and sort of move around between watches. And I'm probably going to chat with her a little bit about the possibility of making them. You know, making all of the straps just because I'll never be making a lot of these watches like i'll never be producing a thousand watches a year or anything like that right like it'll probably be 50 or fewer watches a year so i'll see if she has any interest in doing you know sort of five or ten straps at a time and have you settled on a particular material for the strap for the strap like a particular leather no i haven't that's something that i want to talk about are you going to see what she has yeah i want to i want to sit down and chat with her because she has a lot of sort of weird and unique leathers but i want to avoid those because that that's the kind of thing that you can't necessarily get a hold of i i want to talk to her about what leathers she can get on a regular basis you know sort of semi-consistently i know there's always going to be color variance between leathers even even from the same tannery but we'll see what uh what sort of options she has and you know what's sort of she can get consistently so if you don't settle on something like shell cordovan I seriously think you should consider just shipping her a moose. Just Keep shipping a, a her a moose? Canadian flavor. Yeah. You can get a whole moose hide for about 50 bucks. Uh, yeah, but it's, no. No, I can't do it. A little too, a little too rustic for you? Uh, I, yeah, it's a little too on point. I, I can't. Well, the uh, Shell the shell Cordovan has a bit of a Canadian flavor to it. Most of the hides that Horween gets come from Quebec, because you can eat horse in Quebec. Yeah, I, I don't know. I'll see what... Uh, We'll see what comes out. I know there's a couple of there are a couple of tanneries in North America. Uh, there's one that uh, Tamara dealt with when she did her course on vellum making last year, and they produce mm. uh, they produce leathers for various industries above and beyond um, vellum. If she's not going to work out as a strap maker, or if it's just too un- too expensive to do on a you know sort of on a regular basis. You know, I might go down and talk to somebody like them or, you know, see what I can do about finding some leather that I like and find somebody that can make them for me. But we'll see. The thing I like about dealing with her is the fact that this this isn't the primary thing that she does because she does um, traditional English saddlery. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this is something that she does a lot of. And so she knows what she's doing. The questions that she's asking are clearly from somebody who has made hundreds of, if not thousands of, of watch straps. So. And bridles for horses have to keep up even better than a, a watch strap does. 
Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. A little, so. a little more of a life and death scenario there, potentially. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so I, that doesn't concern me so much, the, the quality of the work. Because from I, – I, actually, Matt had uh, one of Mia's straps on the watch that um, – ah, I can't remember the watch that he had on. Anyways, it was one of her uh, one of her custom straps. Although it's funny because she said that a lot of people, when they get a custom strap done, they'll get just a single hole yeah. put in their watch strap. And I, I think about that. I'm like, how do people do that? My wrists change in size so much that if I if I tried putting a single hole in it, I would stretch it out. Like I, it would take me no effort at all to stretch it out. Hmm. My wrist stays relatively consistent. Like Does I can it? pull it off. Yeah. Okay. I don't think my wrist size has changed much at all in more than a decade. Oh, mine mine will change enough in the course of a day that uh, that it can be a problem for me. Mm-hmm. Um, like in at this time in the summer, I so I wear the um, the link bracelet on my Apple Watch. Yep. And in the summer, I have to put in a link, and uh, that's just so that I don't end up cutting off circulation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in the winter, I have to remove the link. But even then, I can go from the you know the morning and the loose you know the watch might be loose on my wrist and uh, by midday it'll be it'll be tight on my wrist. So, have you ever considered giving the sides of your link bracelet a high polish? <sighs> yeah, <laughs> uh, you know I've actually thought about uh, doing the opposite and actually giving my my watch a satin finish instead. Because <laughs> well, actually... either way fixes the the whole yeah, tangent I, break issue. That I agree. It seems to be. Uh... Very anathema to the the way that the design team works there. I was surprised that they they shipped that bracelet the way that they did. Well, I I, I can understand why. I, I can't imagine that bracelet with a high polish on it. That bracelet would look horrible with a high polish on. No, it. no, just just a high polish on the sides. Keep it nice and matte on the front because uh, you have a, a very distinct break where it meets the case. But the yeah. way that the the I, I fixation saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. portion flows into the case, it's sure meant to conceal any sort of tangent break there or at least give the, the illusion that uh, there's yeah. no, no real difference between the surfaces see it's funny because that's not one that's not the one i understand what you're saying and it is obvious when you look at it but that's not what you see when you're wearing it right what mm-hmm. the one that you see when you're wearing it is that transition from the top of the case to the to the top of the, the bracelet and that's mm-hmm. the one that drives me crazy yeah, that doesn't bother me so much but oh, okay eh, to each their own so how would you just hypothetically speaking here how would you flow the the grain over the the surface of the case, I would make the grain flow lengthwise. So I, I would make it go as a circular pattern around, around the, the entire, okay. yeah, yeah, around the case. So the the edges would be a long stroke. The you know the sh- the faces where the or the edges where the the strap is connecting would be a very short stroke. You know because that's the that's the direction that the polish on the uh, on the bracelet goes. So mm-hmm. that's that's probably how I'd go about it. Well, back to strap materials. An interesting product I learned about today is uh, a fabric made from crab shells. So mm, they break down really? a crab shell and then pull the fibers from that. And apparently it's uh, very antimicrobial. So that might make for a, a decent material for the underside of a, a leather strap. Yeah, that'd be interesting. I, I wonder what uh, what its properties are like, like how much it stretches and things like that. Yeah, I don't. I don't know anything about it. I just learned about it. Was in the, this in the context of being used as a watch strap? No. Okay. Uh, mushroom leather is another interesting up and coming field. <laughs> might, might be able to tap into that. 
Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't. I don't see the. Uh, I don't see there being a hot demand for uh, fungus on your wrist. I think you want to avoid the fungus. Oh, come on, the the fun guys will be all about it. <laughs> I guess, I guess uh, your your timepiece is uh, a little more uh, restrained. A little more traditional, I think. That's uh, I, I yeah. think I probably end up staying with uh, fairly traditional things. I, I have to decide at some point. I I do want to make a bracelet at some point, but I that's. I know that I, that's not something I want to tackle for a while, mm. yeah, but I think it would be I think it would be interesting to make a make a watch with a bracelet because the challenge of making that bracelet would be uh, would be interesting. And would you keep a similar lug profile to what you've currently got, or would you completely reimagine the way you're doing the case? Yeah, I would do a different watch with a different lug profile, and I would probably use a lug profile where the integration between the bracelet and the case would probably be hidden underneath the so almost like the, there's a shroud that comes over the between the lugs to um uh, to sort of cover it up a bit um just to sort of control that um that transition a little bit better uh, because i dislike bracelets where there's um sort of that that rounded edge that goes into the sort of between the case and the and the end of the bracelet uh, like there is with a leather strap. For whatever reason, I like I don't mind it with a leather strap, but with a bracelet, mm-hmm. I don't like it quite as much. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that. Now, would you ever consider going the the high jewelry route and engine turning an entire bracelet? Mm, not sure that I'd ever do that. Um, although it would be, uh, it would certainly hide the wear marks. Uh, one of the things that I do notice with my my link bracelet on my Apple Watch is the the uh, scratches and wear marks on it are pretty pretty horrendous. Now. To be fair, I'm also wearing it in the shop and abusing it, so it's not it's not surprising that it's um, you know that it's quite heavily scratched. But it would certainly help uh, help cover up some of the wear. That's for sure. You should have gone with the DLC version. I, I've considered that actually. Um, one of the things last year, I had I was really close to buying the uh, ceramic, the black ceramic one with the uh, DLC link bracelet. Hmm. But it's you know it's like twenty four hundred dollars. By the time it's done, and it's like, eh, it's a little more than I want to spend on on my Apple Watch. So, do you take your watch off at all in the shop, or you you leave it no. on? No, I leave it on. Okay. And that's one of the reasons why I've I've pretty much written off the aluminum one because between the aluminum case and the, um, the Gorilla Glass on it, I, I would just destroy that watch. Like I know, yeah. I know that I would. Like even even Tamara, who's pretty easy on her watch compared to me, she's scratched up her you know the the face of her watch quite you know quite a bit. And, uh, yeah, there's, there's no way that I could wear, I could wear one of the aluminum ones. So I would just destroy that thing. Yeah. The other thing I was thinking with, uh, with this watch, because, uh, I said, I don't know how far I'm going to be able to get between now and, and when I leave, but, uh, I know for sure that I won't have a dial that works. So I was, uh, I was kind of thinking of, uh, if I, if I get it where I can case the movement and be able to use it as a watch, I might just put, you know, like a, like a hand-drawn dial on it or something like that, put like a big happy face on it or something just to, you know, just to make it obvious that it isn't a, isn't a finished dial. Hmm. Great. Since you're, you're going to England, are you familiar with uh, the independent watch journalist there, uh, Alex Doak? Alex Doak? No, I don't think I am. For a, quite a while leading up to his acquisition of a, a Royal Oak from Audemars Piguet, he would and draw watches which he labeled royal dokes until he he finally acquired <laughs> one so he would strap on these pieces of paper that'd be somewhat reminiscent of a, a gerald Genta design 
and uh, just have a royal royal doe scrawled across the the face of it nice <laughs> so it's been a busy day for you in the shop your case has taken shape it's getting there i uh had to redo that front bezel three times third time's a charm well i don't know we'll see i kept cutting the uh recess for the crystal a little bit too large mm. so the third time i made sure that it's undersized definitely undersized i will cut it to proper size afterwards well i'll, I'll experiment with it and cut it to proper size when i'm uh when it's a little further along but so do you already have a crystal and a gasket yeah yeah i do yeah the only thing so the the funny thing about the this is this is one of those things that drives me nuts because it doesn't seem to be a lot of good information out there about gasket sizes and crystal sizes and what sized opening to put it in. Like for instance, if you go to the cousin's website, you can buy a gasket that's clearly labeled for a particular size of crystal. So, you know, let's say it's for a 36 millimeter crystal. That's fine. And it gives you the outside diameter of the gasket, but that outside diameter, if you try cutting the pocket to that outside diameter, it's not going to compress it all, you know, when you put it all together. So it's it's not going to hold it. So then the question becomes, how much smaller does the, you know, does that pocket need to be to, you know, give the right amount of compression without putting too much pressure on the crystal and the the case? You know, the crystal I'm less concerned about because it's sapphire, so it's it's pretty strong, but that silver will actually deform with enough, uh, you know, with enough force. So so what uh, measurements did you settle on for the, the third round? So the gasket that I've got is for a 36 millimeter crystal and it's 36.7 millimeters is the OD for it. And so I've turned it. So I think it's like 36.2 or something like that right now. So it's definitely undersized for what it's, you know, there's no way that it, uh, that it would be that small. At least I can't can't imagine that it's going to be that small. So it'll probably be a little bit of trial and error getting that crystal in and and uh, making sure that it fits. Yeah, my guess would be like a a thirty six point five. So that give you a tenth on each side. That's probably what I'm. That's that's sort of what I'm guessing as well. And so I'm probably going to try like a thirty six point three. That's probably there's. I doubt that it'll. I doubt that it'll even go in. Um, like it'll even try to go in. And then, you know, sort of try and edge up on it a little bit and see what see what I can get. Well, mineral and sapphire crystals are relatively new on the scene in, in mass-produced watches. Up into the 70s, they were largely using uh, plastic or acrylate crystals. And prior to that, it was often just made from straight glass. And you actually had a lot of watchmakers who would become optometrists because... Hmm. It was also a lucrative business without uh, as much of a possibility of work coming back to you later. And um, <laughs> the watches being what they were back in the day, 100 years ago, uh, they tended to break far more easily too because you didn't have shock resistance or waterproofness or even dust proofness for that matter in most watches. So they were they were very often in for, for service and needing some TLC. So it's much easier just to grind glass to, to help someone see better yeah and with the and with the glass it's a little bit flexible so you can actually um deform the the glass just ever so slightly mm -hmm. to sort of slide it into into the recess right like you can 
you can put a bit of an angle on that on that uh, recess and and uh, just deform the glass slightly or even the plastic and and just drop it in yeah and that's exactly how they they work yeah yeah but of course there's no way you can do that with a with a sapphire no you'll end up with a, a pulverized mess you try and bend <laughs> the sapphire we'll see what happens it's uh, yeah it was a bit frustrating i spent a couple of hours longer turning bezels than i anticipated mm. Uh, but last thing I did do is I did get it. Uh, I did get the center band and the f- or the center bezel and the top bezel soldered together. Wasn't my best soldering job, but it'll uh, it'll do for the prototype for now. So you're you're prototyping in silver? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. the The thing about prototyping it in silver is that it's uh, it's relatively inexpensive. It's easy to work in, right? Like I I can easily cast it. I can easily machine it. I can roll it into sheet if I want to. I can deep draw it if I need to. And I can basically do all of the things that I will probably end up doing to these watches once they get into sort of production in another metal. The problem with something like brass is that it it hides, because it's so easy to machine, it hides a lot of problems in the, in the actual manufacturing process. Uh, and I wouldn't make you know, I wouldn't make, let's say, an 18 karat gold watch in the same way that I would make one out of brass. Mm. Because with brass, you know, I have a, I have a two inch rod, two inch diameter rod of of brass that's two feet long, and I just turn it out of a solid chunk of of brass. Well, you know, if I had a two inch diameter rod of 18 karat gold that's two feet long, I I wouldn't be worrying about making watches, right? No, you go go to tire on a beach somewhere for a couple of years. Yeah, exactly. So. You know, so that's the problem is that it doesn't really mimic what I'm going to be doing uh, in the final pieces. So, and I expect some of them will be in silver as well. Like I'm, don't know that I'm going to use argentium or sterling, but I'm. There's a uh, there's a sterling alloy out there that I want to experiment with that has three percent palladium in it. Apparently, it's completely tarnish resistant, mm. and uh, at least that's the claim. Unlike unlike argentium, which is you know which will eventually tarnish. Uh, apparently this stuff never tarnishes so i want to experiment with that a little bit and and try it it's about twice the price of sterling so um you know it's a, it's a little bit more expensive but it's not it's not heinous but regardless of whether i'm using you know palladium 500 or platinum or 18 karat gold or whatever all of those metals i i have to be you know I, i'm gonna have to fabricate using some casting techniques some turning techniques some deep drawing probably for some of it and so the the silver mimics that much more closely than uh, prototyping in let's say brass or something like that. Yeah, has that non tarnishing alloy a proprietary mix or? I don't believe it is. I think it's a pretty. I think it's um, unlike argentium, which is you know technically a, a you know a trademarked or a patent protected, I should say. Uh, process i believe this uh, this other uh, alloy is not so it's 92 and a half percent silver and then three percent palladium and then the balance is copper so i mean you could technically even make it yourself like you don't necessarily need to buy it um you know pre-made it's just convenient if you can i i wouldn't mind trying some of that out and see what it's like i think right now it's somewhere around 35 or 40 dollars an ounce for for that uh, palladium sterling versus something like palladium 500 which would be great to work with as well uh, but that's going to be more like 450 dollars an ounce and uh, the problem with that is that i can't cast it i, I don't have the the uh, facilities to cast palladium or 
or platinum. Uh, 18 karat gold I can cast, but that's uh, obviously a little more expensive. Mm-hmm. Oh, and then the other problem with uh, working in brass as a prototyping is that casting brass is nasty. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can cast brass, but because of the zinc in brass, it's it's a a really nasty metal to to, uh, to cast, and that's something we talked about earlier. And you don't you don't want another round of zinc poisoning? <laughs> I think I'll pass on that. Yeah, it's funny thinking about silver as something to prototype in, but it's again it's relatively inexpensive. It's easy to work in. I I have a pile of it around, so I'm you know I work in it all the time. Oh, your hands are made of it. That's right. Exactly. So are you pleased with how the coin edge came out? Yeah, for the most part, the there's a lot of chatter in in those cuts. Um, I wasn't too concerned about this setup this time around, so it needs a little bit of tweaking. And these cuts are pretty deep compared to what I normally do, so there was a I was getting a lot of chatter in the cuts. So I, I think I need to adjust the geometry a little bit on my cutters, and uh, that that particular cutter probably needs to be polished. It isn't the best engine turning I've ever done, but it certainly looks good, and it I think it's uh, I think it's going to work for what I want to do. So, do you think that cheddar is exclusively from the cutter, or is it also a result of the speed and depth of the cut, coupled with the the fixture you've mounted the ring onto? Yeah, it's probably a combination of a of a bunch of different things. Well, the fixture itself is going to be pretty stable. Like when you look at that, uh, the way that it's being held in there that that band isn't going anywhere so I'm, I'm not too concerned about that but because it's such a short length that's being cut the the beginning of a cut and the end of a cut are often not great and it's sort of the middle of the cut that that ends up looking much better and the longer the cut is typically the better quality of cut i end up with i'm not entirely happy with with turning such a short little band but i didn't want to make a much larger band until i knew exactly what size i wanted the dimensions that it needs to be because mm. uh, once i do know i will just deep draw a tube that's the the correct diameter uh, both od and, o- and id diameters and that way i can turn let's you know i can engrave a three or four inch length at a time and then i can just part off i think these these bands are 160 thou thick or something like that and so i can just cut off you know, however many I need and, and be done with it like that. Yeah, it's sort of funny the way that it works out because engine turning a long piece, it doesn't take significantly longer than engine turning a short piece. You know, if I was doing, like when I, I've done um, things like necklaces and earrings and stuff in the past and you're better off engine turning, let's say, uh, an eight-inch long sheet of, of silver and then cutting all of your pieces out rather than sitting there and trying to engine turn each little piece individually. It it just takes too long to do that. Often the changeover between the pattern bar, you know, so adjusting the pattern bar, advancing the cutter, all that stuff, it, it takes the same amount of time whether you're cutting a quarter inch or three inches or six inches or eight inches. And it doesn't take significantly longer to cut uh, a much longer cut. It'll be a little bit faster once I actually get into sort of making a bunch of these at once. It looks like a pretty standard V cut. Did you think about or have you ever experimented with doing different shape cutter tips to, the, to see what sort of patterns you get uh like are you thinking something like a like a curve or something like that versus uh yeah perhaps more of like a, a scallop versus just a sharp hmm. incise yeah a scallop would a scallop would look good and that's that's something that, I, that i'll probably experiment with at some point it doesn't get the nice 
uh, you don't get the nice facets that you get out of a um, out of a V cutter, mm-hmm. but uh, you would certainly get a nice look out of it. So yeah, I'll I'll probably experiment a little bit with that and see what works well. I don't think I've got anything that's a V cutter or uh, that would work well for a, as a scallop right now. But that wouldn't be difficult to make up and get a uh, get something with a radius on the front of it. Do some nice scallops on it. Yeah, what you've what you've produced so far reminds me of uh, Peter's Peak Marin or a Breguet case with a, a coin edge. Absolutely, and that's and that was the intention behind this case. So it it definitely has hints of a classic Breguet style case. Um, you know, that was totally the intention behind it. It's not, uh, uh, you know, I'm not trying to uh, pull off like an MBNF you know, crazy design watch for my, my first, uh, my first watch. I wanted to do something that was pretty classic and a relatively standard look and feel to it. Which is an interesting contrast to what you have in mind for the dials. Yeah, we'll see. I, I definitely don't want to do the standard Brigade dial. It'll be interesting to see. I, I still haven't figured out exactly what I want to pull off with the, uh, the dials and, and whether I can pull off what I want to pry. That's the big thing. There's, uh, there's what's in your brain and what you can actually do. And, and, uh, I'm I'm not sure that I can not sure that I can pull it off yet but the the dial is sort of low on my priority list just because I want to get the case done and I want to make sure that I can mount the movement properly and mm-hmm. everything and then once I've got all that done then it's easy for me to sit down and say okay now I can focus on the dial and spend 2 months or whatever just just working on dials and perfecting those Have you seen the engine turned solid gold dials that Votilan is doing for the hourglass in Singapore Hmm. Let me see. I don't. Uh, I don't know that I've seen those yet. Oh, I like that. I like the color of that. That's a really nice rose gold that he's got there. I believe it's a yellow gold, but it's been treated to give it the salmon color. Yeah. Really. Okay. I love the. Yeah. I love the color of that. That's uh, now. Of course, some of you don't know how much of that is uh, photo post processing, but that looks really nice. I like what he's doing there, and uh, they're the engine turning work they do on their stuff is always so nice that's uh i'm always impressed with what they do mm-hmm. yeah well the description claims that the dial color has been treated so i don't know exactly what they're doing to post-process it to give it that color but yeah it's uh yeah definitely quite unique for a gold i've not seen gold in that color before that gold has almost become an orange mm-hmm. yeah it's reminiscent of uh salmon dial Almost. Yeah. But he will often do enamel work on top of the dials, but this is clearly not enamel. It's some other process that they've yeah. used. Yeah, that's it's pretty clear that that hasn't been enameled. Oh, that is gorgeous. That's you know, it's funny because I hadn't thought about doing a uh, I hadn't thought about doing a gold dial, but I don't really like the contrast of too much yellow gold with a with a white metal. So I don't mind having, let's say, like a a white metal dial with a yellow gold case. Uh, I think that looks okay, but I find that having a yellow or uh, having a white metal case with a yellow gold dial, it it's just there's too much too much gold there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's overpowering. But yeah, you're right. It it overpowers the uh, the white metal too much, and you don't get the same level of contrast between the hands and the face as you do with yeah, say, blued hands on a silver face that has been pickled is the wrong word i can't remember bleached there that's the word i'm looking for so the the blue hands on a, a bleached silver dial give you much better contrast yeah. than say the same thing against yellow right right and i've to be honest i'm not a really big fan of the bleaching process i think it uh 
I think it really kills a lot of the beauty of what you're doing with the guilloche work. I, I understand that the entire dial can't necessarily be be high polished, but yeah, I think that uh, I think the bleaching often takes away from a lot of the beauty of what you're doing with the dial. Now, have you ever done much with any sort of electroplating? I have tried plating some guilloche work in the past. The problem is that you lose you lose a bit of the polish, mm. and so you don't get quite the sparkle that you get out of just a plain poly- or a plain engraved piece. Uh, so you do lose something from it, and and it would work. I mean, you could certainly do it, and it would um, and it would look okay, and and in fact, it would probably look much closer to what the bleach styles look like, in terms of you know you're getting a bit of a um, a matte finish, a bit of a you know sort of a softer a softer feel to it. And do you know of anyone ever engine turning, say titanium? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Good friend of mine, Peter Gilroy, down in uh, Taos, New Mexico. He does a lot of work with reactive metals, so he'll work with titanium. He works with some niobium. Uh, I don't know what other metals he's working with. Don't know if he's done any zirconium. Anyways, he's done uh, he's done a bunch of work like that. He also does a bunch of guilloche work, so he's done interesting things where he's doing selective anodizing on on pieces and and engine turning it and things like that. So yeah, he does some uh, he does some really nice work with uh, with titanium. Interesting. Uh, what sort of effect is like, or does anodization have any sort of effect on the the surface texture in the same way that electroplating would? Yeah. Again, you're losing some of that. You're losing some of that high polish, right? You know, you're never going to get the same bright sparkle cuts that you're going to get out of out of a straight uh, like engine turning silver or engine turning gold, and then just leaving it as is. Yeah, so you lose some of that luster. Yeah, and and it's really the you're losing some of that sparkle, right? So it's uh, that's that's part of the problem. So Peter does some some beautiful work using a, a couple of really really great techniques. He, he uses some Damascus, and um, and so he's he's doing some some interesting work in Damascus, but he's also doing a lot of uh, hydraulic formed work. So he will create uh, formed dyes and then shape the metals that he's working in with those um, with with those hydraulic dyes. And that gets some great texture. He's uh, he's also a rock climber, so a lot of his work is inspired by the uh, the nature that he's often in the uh, the mountains that he's climbing. And being in Taos, he's got some gorgeous scenery around there. Mm-hmm. So he's doing a lot of uh, a lot of interesting work with uh, with hydraulically forming stuff. You know, he does some neat carving of things to get designs reminiscent of mountain ranges into. Um, into let's say some Damascus, and then he'll often inlay that with gold. Yeah, some great textures, a lot of really textural stuff. It's it's um, that's great. And then because he's working with titaniums, he can anodize it in stunning colors. So some of these pieces, uh, there's one of the necklaces on his site, uh, the Sunrise Uplift Necklace, is just gorgeous. It's got this beautiful gold background that's been engine turned on a rose engine. And then the sort of raised up from that in the foreground is this uh, mountain range. It's in blue and it's the whole piece is done in titanium, but it, it looks gorgeous. The colors that he gets out of it are just stunning. Um, yeah, you can do some uh, do some great work with that. And he he really experiments a lot with it and does some uh, does some great work with it. You go and check out his stuff. He's it's fabulous fabulous stuff yeah the sunrise on that is a very interesting use of engine turning he's definitely pushing engine turning in a way that a lot of traditional engine turning work just doesn't do and so that there's guys like him guys like uh rich littleston uh that are doing different things with with their engine turning and it's uh i love seeing this stuff it gets me thinking outside of the box and and to stop thinking about the stuff that brigade was doing or the stuff that 
you know, that Fabergé was doing, because even though that stuff is great and there's a place for it, there's, there are also limits to it. And you don't want to get stuck into that, you know, that rut of, of just doing what other people have done in the past. And do you know what sort of technique he uses for the masking when he's anodizing the titanium? He and I talked about it a little bit. Have you ever done any, any titanium anodizing? I've not. My understanding, and I'm, I really don't, I've never done it. And I, I only, you know, I've sort of only sort of chatted with people about it. But my understanding is that there are two current ranges that you can work what you can anodize in. So there's a high current and a low current. And within each of those ranges, there's a whole range of colors that you can get. So there's a bunch of high current colors and there's a bunch of low current colors. And my understanding is that you can go off and you can do the high current anodization and get, let's say, the gold, for instance. Then you can mask it. And then you can do the low current anodization and get the blue. And that will, um, it will then fill over the, you know, sort of the gold anodization that was done uh, in the unmasked area. And, you know, in terms of masking, I, I'm not sure exactly what it is that he's using, but you can often use epoxies and things like that for masking. Like it's a, it's a relatively simple simple uh, technique for masking it because of the the two ranges of anodization when you're when you're working with titanium you can do some interesting things where you're basically over anodizing something and you completely hide the fact that the other one is there just because it's just because they're in the two different ranges yeah and he still gets a pretty bright cut out of that even even with the anodization on top of it it still looks pretty bright yeah, and things like the necklace too it's a much larger surface area than a watch dial yeah oh yeah absolutely yeah i don't know that i would ever experiment with with titanium dials i mean i, I might it's uh I, i'm not really set up to do to do a lot of work with uh with anodization like i don't have have a setup for playing around with um different currents and stuff like that for anodizing but uh, who knows? Maybe I'll uh, maybe the next time I go down to Taos, I'll bring s- some ideas down with me, and he and I can play with it a bit. Now, do you know if he has a preference between working with niobium or titanium? I mean, for the looks of things, he seems to favor the titanium. But uh, some of it is uh, some of it is niobium. I think the um, I think it's like the black the blackish metal that he's working in. Let me just see here. Yeah, so like let's say for instance, you take a look at some of these like granite earrings where they're the heavy granite texture to it and it's it's a black metal with a gold you know sort of a gold trace going down it that black metal is niobium and um and that's that's what it looks like after anodization he does a fair bit of work with that i don't know that he's engine turned any of the niobium i know he's doing a lot of uh hydraulic forming with it but i don't know if he's doing any any actual engine turning with it yeah on those particular earrings it looks like he's actually inlaid gold and that's not uh, a result of the anodization process yeah. yeah that's actually 18 karat gold that he's inlaid in there and so he'll he'll take the sheet of niobium he'll mill out the trace of where the gold's going to go inlay the gold and then he'll hydraulically form the piece so the gold ends up with the same texture because it's all part of the same sheet as it's being hydraulically formed. And then anodize it after that. Yeah. And then anodize it after that because, of course, the 18 karat gold isn't going to be affected by it. Very clever. Yeah, it's. Um, I, I like. I like what he's doing with the with the gold inlay into the uh, into the niobium. And again, because that niobium has such a nice has such a beautiful dark color to it after anodization, uh, the contrast out of it is stunning. So that that might be interesting to play with as well. I I do want to experiment with some alternative materials for making cases out of and making dials out of stuff that people just aren't really doing anything with in the watch world. 
you know, obviously we've got things like carbon fiber and stuff like that. Like some, there, there are some weird materials out there, but there's some materials like this, which are not being used at all in the watch world. And I think they could be bring something a little bit different to it. I don't know how durable that, uh, that anodization is. I expect it's pretty durable, you know, with a little bit of gold, gold accent or silver accent or whatever you could, you, I think you could, uh, you could create some, uh, really nice contrast with that and, and create some interesting designs yeah i've been experimenting with making a calendar indicator wheel and uh, the color he's been able to achieve with the niobium here has me tempted to possibly experiment with using some niobium once i have the the design dialed in i don't know if it will hand, like hold up at the thinness that i'm working at uh, but it's, i'd be interested to see hmm. uh, how it how it plays out well i can find out from him what uh, what's involved in uh, anodizing the niobium and i i believe it's the same setup as what he uses for the titanium yeah i'm pretty sure it is i have a friend and she's got a setup in her garage and she does both the titanium and niobium hmm. as well okay yeah i'd be interested in um in seeing how that looks i think there's some interesting ideas there and i again it's it's sort of midway down my my list of things to experiment with for watches but I think uh I think we could I could do some really neat things with this and I is that I don't I don't think he's done any engine turning in niobium. I know titanium's a bit of a pain to engine turn because it's so soft and gummy. It doesn't engine turn very well, but he's he's figured it out. I know a lot of people just gave up on it, but I'm not sure if niobium engine turns at all uh, based on the fact that he doesn't have any pieces up here right now. I suspect it probably doesn't engine turn well at all. Yeah, the swarf that comes off titanium just goes on forever. It's razor sharp. Oh, yeah, yeah. I made myself a, a loop out of titanium back in watchmaking school, and I, I went through a, a box of Band-Aids. <laughs> well, that's a bit of an exaggeration, but I, I definitely unintentionally cut my fingers a number of times just dealing with the piece, bits and pieces coming off the lathe. Yeah, you have to be careful with titanium. It's, uh, it's not a great material to work with in a machine shop. Um, the, uh, the swarf can, can catch on fire. It's, uh, it doesn't self-combust. It's not like, uh, zirconium. Is it zirconium? I'm not sure about zirconium, but I know aluminum can ignite. Yeah, uh, aluminum, aluminum, you still need to, you still need to actually light it. Like it needs to get to a fairly high temperature before it'll ignite, but it, the powders and stuff, like aluminum powder will definitely, um, will definitely burn. You know, with, with titanium, if it gets too hot, the swarf will definitely burn. Uh, there's another one that the swarf can spontaneously combust and it will, it burns really, really hot, like a couple thousand degrees and it will, uh, it can burn down your shop pretty quickly. So yeah, I know with uh, titanium, you need to flood cool, preferably. Yeah, I don't know if zirconium spontaneously combusts, but an interesting uh, tidbit from a quick Google search is that it can spontaneously decay into niobium. Yeah. Oh, really? Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> I know magnesium can be brutal when it lights up. They used to use that to get into the safes and stuff. Yeah, I don't know. Magnesium is, uh, is super dangerous. Yeah, it is, it is zirconium. Yeah, zirconium uh, chips will definitely ignite, and they are they are nasty. You have to be careful about uh, disposing of of the swarfs from zirconium, zirconium as well because it's, uh, you know, you don't want to just pack that in. Like, for instance, you wouldn't want to pack a, a, some zirconium chips in with a bunch of aluminum chips, for instance. Because the zirconium can self-ignite, and then once that ignites, it will get hot enough that the aluminum will, will ignite as well and will start burning. Thanks for listening to Off Hours. You can find detailed show notes at offhours.show. If you'd like to keep up to date with the show, follow us on Twitter, at Off Hours. 
John can be found on Twitter at UnderTheLoop, and Chris can be found on Twitter and Instagram at Silver underscore Hand. <laughs>